If you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn to uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to bring uh, some of 1 Thessalonians to you, and we want to continue that study now. We're going to read the entire first or second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, but we'll be looking only at the first five, maybe six verses. So uh, this is God's word. We're going to hear it from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me invite you to stand as we hear what the Lord says. This is God's word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we pro proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. God's own word, please have a seat. I promised Morgan and Anna that I was going to tell you a story. And that's about the boy who cried wolf. You may have heard that story. There was a little boy who was a shepherd, and it's pretty boring being a shepherd. 
you go out and you watch the sheep and the sheep eat and they wander around uh, and you don't have anything to do all day long. So he decided to get a little excitement going and he ran into the village and he yelled, the wolf is coming, the wolf is coming. And all the men in the villages grabbed spears or whatever they had and they ran out to chase off the wolf and there wasn't any wolf. And they were puzzled, but he started laughing. He thought it was a great joke. So he went back to watching the sheep. And after a few days, he got tired again and bored again. And so he started shouting, the wolf is coming, the wolf is coming. And he ran into the village shouting that. And the men in the village grabbed their spears and whatever and ran out to chase off the wolf and there wasn't any wolf there. And again, he laughed and people didn't laugh this time. They were mad. Now the third time he ran into the village and said, the wolf is coming, the wolf is coming. That's because there was a wolf coming and they didn't pay any attention to him. They thought he was joking just like he did before and the wolf killed the sheep. Now, God appoints in the church leaders who speak the word of God. They don't say the wolf is coming. They tell you what God says. They have to do things according to the way God says to do them. So you don't need to be like the boy and you don't need to be like the villagers. You need to be like the ones who listen. So I hope you'll listen because Jesus is revealed to us in these verses. And we want to pay attention anytime we're hearing about Jesus. So let's pray now that God will help us all do that. Our Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit, who loves to exalt the Son of God, might exalt Christ before our eyes, might teach us about the church that he is building, might encourage us to pray for one another, and we might see that the church is stronger because of what you've done. We thank you that you're faithful to work, and we ask you to work now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our brother Brian has gone through confirmation hearings before the Senate, and uh, we know that there are hearings that go on in D.C., and we know that uh, headlines in newspapers show us different things, whether it's a preacher or a, a politician, uh, and, and we start to look at how people are acting, and we measure their words against their actions. The words and the actions have to fit together, don't they? It's no good to have words going one direction and actions going another direction. Now, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had gone to this city of Thessalonica on the Greek coast. They'd been there three weeks, only three weeks, and they were driven out of town by an uproar in the city. And so, Apparently, people in the city who had not become Christians were saying, these guys are cowards. They come in for three weeks, and as soon as things get hot, they leave. They're probably there just to get some money, 
because traveling philosophers would do that. They would go around to places, set up shop, and as soon as they had milked the populace of some money, they'd move on to the next place. Well, they're accusing the apostles of doing that. Now, Paul is defending in chapter 2 and chapter 1 to some extent. He's defending himself and his companions. Now, why is he doing that? Is it because Paul's insulted? No, it's because Paul is defending the message. You see, that's where the message and the messenger come together. If Paul's message is run down because of the messenger, that's what Paul is fighting against. People can insult him and do all kinds of things to him. They did that. But his message had to stand. And so he was defending his message. Now, that's the point that we want to look at. And, and we, we've seen how this works. Right now, we have people who are attacking our Constitution Declaration of Independence. Many, perhaps most, of the signers of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution uh, had slaves. Does that mean that those two documents are of no value to us? No, they knew what liberty was. They signed those documents, they, they wrote those documents, but it's not to be uh, thought that what they were doing vitiated what they had written. If somebody comes into town and they preach about Jesus and they leave in disgrace, does that mean that if it's true preaching, you don't pay attention to it? See, that's what Paul's talking about. Would the people ignore the message that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had preached because they left town too early? So we're going to see how this, this goes, how this uh, unfolds. And we're going to look, look at three things. This defines something about his character, their, their character, uh, in these first five, mm, sort of six verses. It's pure, it's personal, and it's powerful. Okay, pretty easy to remember. Three Ps, pure, powerful, and personal. So I hope you'll see that comes out of this passage. Now, all of us struggle with mixed motives about all kinds of things, don't we? I love my wife. I love her a lot. Uh, now, I love her for a lot of different reasons. She's pretty and smart. Uh, we've been together a long time. Uh, and she knows me, but I love her also because I want people to think that I'm a good husband. I want her to love me back. See, my motives aren't just loving her. They're also what I get from that. Now, I, I've been preaching for a very long time. It seems like a very long time anyway. And I love to preach. I love God's word. I love Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus. But you know what? Here's a little secret. I also like people to think, wow, isn't he special? He preaches. He's a preacher. How special is he? I want people to like me. So our motives are mixed. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to defend the purity of their motives. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
their opponents probably said, these guys have come to town for one purpose, that's to get your money and leave as soon as things get difficult. And Paul says, no, our motives were not that. Our motives were not that at all. We didn't skip town. We didn't milk you and then let, leave town as soon as it was difficult. In fact, look at what Paul says in verse 9. He says, day or night and day, we worked hard. We toiled and labored to support ourselves. Paul was the original tent maker, missionary. He literally was a tent maker and he, he made tents to support himself and his companions. So he wasn't there to get as much money as he could from the people around him. So Paul and Silas and Timothy came into town with pure motives. And they came into town after having suffered a lot at the hands of the people of Philippi. Look at verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, if you go back to Acts 16, you find the story. Paul and Silas had come into town, and as soon as they got going and preaching the gospel and people were being converted, uh, there was a mob that came after them, and they were arrested, they were stripped and beaten with rods, then they were thrown into prison, they were put in shackles in the inner prison. And all the time, they were Roman citizens. They should not have been treated like this. They were deserving a fair trial, at the very least, certainly not to be beaten like they were. They were shamefully treated, humiliated. Roman citizens stripped and beaten in public. So Paul says, when that happened, you know what happened when we came to Thessalonica? We didn't say, well, maybe we better back off. Maybe we better tone it down. He said, we were ready to preach the gospel to you also. What happened in Philippi was going to happen in Thessalonica. But Paul didn't say, because of what happens in Philippi, we're not going to do the same thing here. We don't want to go through that again. You see, their motives were pure because they were bound to preach Christ. That was the heartbeat of Paul's life. Paul sums it up in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, doesn't he? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. No matter where I go, no matter what I'm facing, no matter the opposition, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Purity of motive in the ministry comes from wanting to please God above all things. You get that? Purity of God in, purity before God in the ministry comes from wanting to please him above all things and not please men. If a man is seeking to please people, his gospel will shift. It'll change. It'll evolve. 
we've just become an evolving society, haven't we? We start out here with the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and after a while, things begin to fall off and we're over here. And people wonder, how did we get over there? But that's what happens. Remember what Paul wrote. He wrote this actually to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Does that sound like today? When people think about the explosive growth of Christianity in Africa, do you know what's behind some of that growth? It's the health and wealth gospels. Saying if you believe enough, God will make you healthy and God will make you wealthy. Now, try telling that to an impoverished, hungry African mom. Is she gonna embrace that message? That's the first kind of thing she'd love to hear. That kind of a gospel has moved away from what Paul's preaching. The gospel that appeals to the hearts of men is not the gospel that God declares because the gospel God declares is a hard thing to announce. We are lost and dead in sin. And everybody here, if you don't repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, you will spend eternity in hell. That's what God says. You must return to Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness and find forgiveness in him. He will receive you. He is that kind of a gracious savior. But Christianity announces hard things. Jesus says that we're to take up our crosses and follow him daily. Take up our crosses, put ourselves to death and follow Christ. Paul will tell the Galatians this in Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of God or am I seeking to please man? If I are still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God, of Christ. See, if we want to be servants of Christ, if you want your leaders to be servants of Christ, they need to be preaching Christ to you, not anything that you may want to hear, <laughs> but hear what the Word of God says. This is what Paul is talking about, and this is what is modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? If you talk about purity of motive, you've got to think about Christ. Christ came to, to the earth to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. Christ came to earth to die. I just finished reading through the Gospel of Matthew and I started marking all the times that Christ said, the Son of Man must go to the cross and be crucified. Christ is announcing that. He comes to earth knowing what he's bound for. Christ, in everything he's doing, has his eye on glorifying his Father who is in heaven. So Paul will tell Timothy to purify himself as he, Christ, is pure. 1 Timothy 5, 22. 
And thank God it's the Holy Spirit who purifies us and puts sin to death in us. There is no hypocrisy in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say one thing and do another. Everything Christ says matches up perfectly with what Christ does. There is a purity to the motives of the Son of God. And what that means is that Jesus and his words can be trusted utterly. Everything Jesus Christ says can be trusted. And if he says to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you can bet the farm on it. Jesus Christ will save you. With that kind of purity of motive, it's no wonder that Paul was intensely personal in this passage. Now, if you've been in the OPC for any period of time, you know that most OP congregations are small. For whatever reason, I'm not saying that smallness is any holy thing, but the case of the matter is, most OP congregations are small. What that means is that leaders should be intensely personal, should know the flock. They should know the people in their congregations. That personal aspect comes out when the leaders, pastors and elders and deacons are involved in lives. They know what's going on. This is what's happening with Paul because Paul understands a very basic principle, and we see it all over the place, in the church and elsewhere. People become like their leaders. Isn't that true? People become like their leaders. If a leader in the church is harsh, judgmental, if they are cruel with their words, then people in the church are likely to become harsh, judgmental, and cruel with their words. If the leadership is sloppy in things as important as the worship of God, saying, well, whatever, you can believe that people will become less and less concerned with reverencing God when they come into worship. So Paul is very aware that his example, how he lived, how his companions lived, was going to be under the scrutiny of the people around him. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul repeatedly points to himself. Uh, when we get later on in this chapter, we're going to see him comparing himself, first of all, to a mother and then to a father. <laughs> He's going to be parenting uh, these people. He says back in chapter 1, verse 5, this. He says, you know what kind of man, men we prove to be among you for your sake. You know it. Why do they know it? because they were there, because they were involved in the lives, because they were seen, because it was personal. It wasn't at a distance. They didn't just phone in the message. They were preaching it. And what Paul will say uh, in the book of Acts uh, when he talks to the Ephesian elders is, we went from house to house. We were intensely involved. A man can come across as godly and earnest in the pulpit, but you get him out on the golf course and listen to the language that he speaks. And you say, is this the same guy? 
or you begin to talk to his wife and children and ask, what kind of man is he at home? Is his life at home the same as his life in front of the church? Paul's saying, yes, you know what we were like. You know how we acted, you know how we thought. And it's true, the gospel message, because what we lived out is what we said. Look back in verse two. He talks there about how they were shamefully treated in Philippi. Do you think that only three weeks after they had been in Philippi, the wounds were still there on their backs, in their arms? Do you think there were marks of the shackles on their feet or their hands? And the people could see this man coming to them and he's got the bruises still evident on his body of suffering for the gospel. Because Paul had told people years before, this is a great verse in Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. He was exemplifying to them, showing to them that this is costly to follow Jesus Christ. And so if I'm calling you, Paul would say, to follow Christ, I want you to know that I'm ready to pay the price myself and live that way. The story's told of the Marian persecution, that's the persecution under Queen Mary uh, in England, when she began rounding up Protestants and she would imprison some and she would execute some. And there was a particular pastor who was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was put in a cart and he was being taken to Smithfield, England, to be burned at the stake. That's what they did, to be burned at the stake. And following along was a crowd of people, were these people who were just, you know, kind of saying, oh, look at this, this is gonna be a good show. These were members of his congregation Someone asked, why are you following this man along? And they said, we're going to Smithfield to learn how to die for Jesus. Personal, personal kind of ministry. The truth of the language that they preached was seen in how they lived and how they faced suffering. A leader who takes the easy way shows that the cost is just not worth it. Truth in the ministry requires that we be faithful to it. And Paul looks to the example of the Lord Jesus himself in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know those verses, they're familiar to us. Think about them. Jesus is God, 
He's God. And he becomes man. He becomes one of his creatures. Jesus takes upon him the form of a servant, the Lord of all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He takes on the form of a servant and he becomes obedient to death, the most shameful death possible. Jesus does this to show us that he has come to us. If there is anyone who knows your sorrows, if there is anyone who knows your troubles, it is Jesus. Jesus knows all about the sorrows of the heart. Jesus proclaimed, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're a Christian, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows you. He knows your name. In fact, he says he has it written in his big book in heaven, the Lamb's Book of Life. You've got a personal Savior, a pure Savior, pure in all his motives, personal in his love and mercy towards you, giving his life for you. But he's also powerful. Many of us read about, uh, have read about Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. And, and you probably read that when he preached it to his own congregation, people said, boy, that guy preaches a long time. Then he goes to Enfield, Connecticut, and the Spirit of God works. And a revival breaks out in Enfield that spreads throughout New England. Now, what's the difference? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had come, and they were ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. The message itself can be impotent. It can lie dead on the ground, you might say, unless the Holy Spirit gives us wing, gives it wings. In chapter 1, the Thessalonians are changed people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at what happened. Verse 9, the people said uh, concerning them, what kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That word of the preaching of the gospel changed lives. If you left worshiping the idols, you became an anti-citizen <laughs> because part of your citizenship was worshiping the idols. Part of your citizenship was honoring the idols of your city, the idols of your trade guild or whatever it may be. And if you stopped worshiping those idols, you are now set against your whole culture. 
they turned to serve the living and true God. They said, Diana, Apollo, Zeus, they're nothing. I can tell you that there's a God in heaven who made the heavens. They did that because they were transformed. They were changed. They abandoned their idolatry and they believed in the true and living God and believed in Jesus. Believing in Jesus makes Paul say, our coming to you wasn't in vain. Something really happened. We didn't just say these words. God really worked. He really changed lives. That's one of the things that marks out ministry, changed lives. When the gospel is heard, that's why we read those words from Isaiah. God's word doesn't return to us void, to, to him void. And because of that, preachers are encouraged because it's not our eloquence, not our power or anything. It's the fact that God works. So the apostles hadn't come to Thessalonica to take something, some money, they worked for their living, but to give the gospel. So they gave the gospel, they gave it away as they gave themselves away. They gave it away with boldness. Even though they had been shamefully treated and beaten up and mistreated in, Thess in uh, Philippi, even though they're facing opposition and conflict there uh, in Thessalonica, they came with boldness, the same boldness, and they preached Christ there, giving away the gospel, the gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection power. And so they say in verse 6, we did not seek glory from people, whether you, from you or from others. We didn't seek it because it's not the point. It's the gospel of God preached before God. God's the audience. If a preacher remembers it on Sunday, and it's hard to do, remembers it on Sunday, it's not the number of people there sitting in the chairs of pews. The audience is Jesus. Preaching the truth about Jesus Christ, about the God who made heaven and earth, is the thing the preacher has to have in mind. And having that in mind gives you a boldness and an earnestness. And because you believe that truth that God says, you have what the Puritans used to call blood earnestness, pleading with people to believe the gospel. You see, it matters to me and Ian and Brian and Andrew. It matters to us whether you're in heaven or hell, it really does matter. We want you in heaven. We want you to believe in Jesus. But the power will come from God. And this is the glorious thing we see in our Savior. Because Jesus came with power to heal the sick, to raise the dead. Jesus Christ did not cry, wolf, wolf, and there is no wolf. Instead, he is the man who speaks like no one ever spoke. He's the man who has authority like no one ever had authority. He's the one who heals the lame, heals the blind, raises the dead, and himself is raised. Jesus Christ is the one with power. 
and to turn away from him to idols is the height of folly. Why would you turn away from the one who is the powerful one to one that has no power? And sadly, that's what so many people do. Now, we live in a world that tries to edit this message, to edit the message of the gospel down, to remove the shame of the cross, to remove the truth of the resurrection, to make Jesus just like another. Well, he's not like another. He's the son of God, come from heaven to save a people from their sins. And it's by repentance and faith in the son of God that he's ours. He's that pure, personal, and powerful savior who calls you to himself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would call, call every person here to yourself in the gospel. That you would do that great thing of bringing about salvation as you are pleased to do um, in every heart. We thank you, Father, that your promises to your people are unshakable. Your people will be with you in heaven forever. And we praise you that this will not be of our own doing, not by our own strength, but by your grace and mighty overcoming power. We glorify you and rejoice in you and trust in you, our God and King. Amen.